This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. What is resiliency and how can civil engineering professionals and firms learn about it to give themselves an edge in this field where we're going to need a lot of resiliency in the future? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with John Keller, Licensed Professional Engineer, PMP, and Executive Director of the New Jersey Turnpike Authority. John was previously on episode 119 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, where he talked about the differences between working in the public sector versus the private sector. And in this episode, we're going to talk to him about this crucial topic of resiliency. He's going to give some examples in the transportation industry, but it really applies to every avenue of civil engineering. And what I really love about this is he talks about the opportunities that are available. If you as a design professional or a civil engineer in general, learn about resiliency, build your expertise in resiliency to help yourself and your firm grow. Now, before we get started with John, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Keller. By connecting global resources and expertise with local knowledge and focus, Keller develops innovative, practical, and cost-effective solutions to geotechnical challenges, including deep foundations, ground improvement, groundwater control, liquefaction mitigation, releveling structures, slope stabilization, supportive excavation, underpinning, and instrumentation and monitoring. Keller builds projects designed by others and offers complete design build services for any geotechnical construction application. Keller was founded in 1860 and is the largest geotechnical specialty contractor in the world, with operations in over 40 countries across five continents. With a North American presence of over 100 years, Keller operates as the market leader with over 60 offices throughout the U.S. and Canada and is the sole source for a complete geotechnical construction solution optimally designed to meet clients' needs. To learn more about Keller, visit our website at www.keller-na.com. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the show today. John Keller is a licensed professional engineer, PMP, executive director of the New Jersey Turnpike Authority, and he's been on the show before. So I'm actually welcoming John back to the show. John, welcome back to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Anthony, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's great to have you back. It's been some time, but we're excited to jump into the topic today of resiliency. But before we do that, John, For our listeners that maybe haven't heard your last episode, can you just maybe describe your role? What is it that you do on a daily basis? I was a uh, design engineer for 10 years, and then I came over to New Jersey Turnpike Authority 25 plus years ago, and uh, was in the engineering department for 20 years as a project manager. Wide array of different projects. I worked on large $2.3 billion widening where we added uh, 170 lane miles onto the turnpike, but I also did smaller projects 
a potter's field project. We uh, disinterred 4,571 bodies, the largest ever in the United States. And then I also ran a facilities program, about half a billion dollars, updating and redoing all of our maintenance districts and state police buildings. So a wide array of engineering type of projects. In the last five years, I've been lucky enough to be the executive director of the New Jersey Turnpike Authority, which gives a whole new perspective when you're in engineering, you know, bridges, roads, that's what you're tasked with. When you come in as executive director, now you bring in the whole finance side, personnel side, bonding, resiliency. There's a lot that goes into it. And uh, I've been lucky to get a, a well-rounded career from that. What are some of the biggest challenges that the transportation industry is currently facing in terms of resiliency? Great question. And the fact that resiliency for many of us is, is brand new, right? 20, 30 years ago, nobody was talking about resiliency. So I believe part of the, the challenge that we have is really getting your hands around it. What is it? How do we approach it? What do we have to do now? Can we wait 20, 30, 40 years? Is it really something that we have to just dive into at this point? And it really is. We'll go through some of the, the rationale for that in that you can make small changes today that will save you millions and in the future if you make some modifications early on. So that's something that the engineering community has to look at. You could do it incrementally in a bunch of different projects, and it's, you can never be 100% resilient. You can't wake up one day and say, we're resilient, we're done, because there's always something around the corner. So those are some of the issues that we face today is, is uh, learning to embrace the concept of resiliency. Yeah, and I guess just for those listeners that maybe aren't that familiar actually with the term, when we're talking about resiliency, we're really talking about the ability of our projects to face adversity, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. I mean, the FHWA definition of resiliency is really broken into three components, pre, before the storm, during the storm, and post the storm. So the Reads anticipate, prepare for, and adapt to changing conditions. So pre, withstand whatever it is, and then post, how quickly can you respond to and recover from the disruptions? And if you break that down, to me, it's so much asset management and risk management kind of all brought together. Uh, I just was recently had the opportunity to speak at uh, IBTTA which uh, for any of your listeners who are not familiar with it, who have an opportunity to get involved in it, I would strongly suggest because IBTTA gets you involved with toll roads from around the country and around the world, as a matter of fact. And um, you get a different perspective. When I speak to my colleagues out in California, resiliency or climate change is different for them than it is for here. And being living in New Jersey, I always thought, well, you know, you get more and more intense rain events, sea, uh, rising sea levels. But when you go out in California, it might be droughts and wildfires uh, and uh, mudslides kind of deal. So the whole uh, climate change impacts people around the world differently, but everybody has something to deal with. So the pre, the during, and the post is very, very similar, as I said, to risk management. And with risk management, you could sit around early on, and if this happens, what do we do? And you prepare for it. And that's kind of what you have to do with resiliency, because you know, as a toll road agency, or even if you're not, you work uh, you know, local, municipal, state, county, how much risk are you willing to take? Is it okay 
that after a big rainstorm, your road's going to be closed in the future for five hours, 10 hours, two days, I don't know. And your risk level might be different than mine. Uh, running a toll road, you can't have that. People need to rely on your system to get from A to B. You know, it's kind of like a, a huge snowstorm. We know we're going to get them every winter here in the Northeast. And we take the proper precautions with the number of snow plows and trucks and getting the right people, our assets out on the road to do what we need to keep our road open and functioning. Well, that's going to be the case moving forward more often with rain events and impacts from heat events as well. Asset management, risk management, resiliency, to me, you throw a blanket over all three of them and they, they're all intertwined. I would think a lot of engineering professionals out there would say, hey, this is great. You know, we certainly want our projects to be more resilient, but then you get into the challenge of the budgets, you know, like how, what is this going to cost us? So talk a little bit about the challenge, the financial side of it, the budgeting and how we can approach that or think through that. I mean, everything ultimately comes down to dollars. You want to do stuff, but the dollars just aren't there. So there's a lot of low hanging fruit that I don't, believe that everybody is aware that you can work into your designs. Bridges built today are, are generally built to last 75 years. And on the Turnpike and Parkway, many of our bridges were original from 1950, 1952 circuit timeframe, and they're still standing. So the bridges we built today are still going to be around in the year 2100. And all the climate change reports talk about how much sea level in the East Coast is going to be up in by 2050, and even more so in 2100, you know, feet they're talking about. So if you're building a bridge today, you have to look at elevations, uh, at flood controls, what's going to be like in 2100. If you do that, to build a bridge three feet higher, two feet higher, or have your drainage pipe, uh, instead of being a 48, it's a 60 or something like that, is very nominal cost differential. 5%, 2%, I don't know exactly, depending on the project. But if you build it the way you've always been building it to the same specs and design standards, you're going to have a problem because in 20 years, you might be now retrofitting that bridge and taking the deck off and doing all that. And now you got yourself a huge financial impact. So if you can work some of them into current design thinking, it'll save you a lot of money in the future. Is it a little bit more now? Absolutely, Anthony, but it is knock down, redo kind of thing. So why is all this so important, John, to take action when it comes to resiliency? Why should we be doing this today? We owe it to the public. It's not fair that in 10, 20, 50 years from now to expect roads not to be functioning. People have to get goods to market. They have to be able to go out and if for commerce reasons, move uh, goods and services, get to the hospital. And if the roads are going to be closed or our assets are going to be failing, it's not fair. I mean, we need to do this. It's the responsibility, I feel, as an engineer and in a position of, of authority here at the Turnpike Authority to make sure that we are looking long term for our customers. And again, if you do some of the work early and put it into your designs now, it is not as heavy of a lift as you might think. There was a uh, something on 60 Minutes on a place called in Florida called Babcock Ranch. And it was a new area that was built, but it was built to be very resilient and uh, sustainable. And last September, Hurricane Ian went right over it, Category 4 storm. 
and everything around that one community was devastated. And they had uh, a couple trees that fell down and a couple roof shingles uh, came off. And on the uh, 60 minutes, they were like, the people felt bad because they're looking at their neighbors, you know, only a couple miles away and their houses are destroyed. So if you take that and look at how we're building our bridges and how we're handling our assets today to be ready for the future, I think there's something absolutely to be learned in that. The, the cost for the houses at that Babcock Ranch, according to the report, was only about 10% higher than your normal house in the area. And I think that kind of is a direct correlation to maybe that's what our, our bridges and uh, raising some of the roadways would cost if, uh, you know, a fairly nominal percentage. As licensed engineers, you know, you take an oath and you have to hold the health and safety of the public in high regard. And I certainly think by considering resilient efforts and your design efforts, you're doing that. Because like you said, if roads are not accessible, if hospitals are not accessible, that's a big detriment to the safety of the public. And that's something that I feel, I agree with you, that we're kind of responsible to think through those things as licensed professionals. Absolutely. And that's why we get into this, right? We're not going to be rich, but this is what we do. And uh, it's our responsibility to look at it in the future. I mean, I look at my kids and what is their future going to be here if uh, our roads and uh, are, are not open for them to use as we have used it all these years. So a lot of our listeners, John, are design engineers. So what could they be doing to open up new markets for themselves when it comes to these resiliency efforts? There's only a few design engineers or uh different companies who have really embraced it. Uh, we have been lucky, Dewberry Engineers has stepped forth and are putting together, they're doing our resiliency plan for us. I think there's a whole untapped market that you can go to the township level and look at their facilities and what minor steps could be done to improve it, to move on. What I, we've tasked Dewberry to do is to look at everything we have, assess the risk, the vulnerability, if you will, of those, and then that'll help us prioritize the money moving forward. There's plenty of places along our roadways that are not vulnerable. We don't have to spend the money there, but there are other locations that are very vulnerable. So when we're doing a project in that area, we know we have to seriously look at it and maybe make some design changes that we wouldn't have in the past. There was a question, something I wanted to bring up is that resiliency though, is not an independent adventure here. Everybody has to work together. So if I make a portion of our roads, uh, not me, we have great people here at the authority and we have great contractors that we work with, but we, if we put a lot of money into a portion of the road, so it's resilient, you know, a hundred, 500 year storm, whatever it is, it's going to be open. But the ramps that go off of our road to the locals is going to be under four feet of water. I shouldn't have spent my money there. So it is a very coordinated effort that you have to do. Evacuation routes near hospitals, you can look at it from many different ways, but it has to be coordinated at many different levels. Sometimes that's great and you have partners who are willing to work together. And then other times you have to assess, you know, where do we put our money? What's best bang for the buck is what it is. But I think it's pulling people together, meeting with county engineers, meeting with some of the municipalities. Of course, we're working with the DOT and the DEP on a coordinated effort, but it has to be just that. And that's why I think I'm so happy, or I know I'm so happy to be on your podcast, is to bring resiliency a little bit more to the fore 
I believe that maybe a year ago, I would have been a little reticent and taken back. I don't know what resiliency is. Let's stay away from it. But then when you break it down to, you know, my simple mind as an engineer, asset management, risk management, crisis management, all those things go together. So we had uh, a hurricane that came over New Jersey a year or so ago, and it was Hurricane Ida. And our roads look great. Like if you went out there a day before and did some kind of analysis of our road, you might come back and say, oh, cut the grass or do something, but they look great. But all of a sudden the storm in one area stalled over our roadway and we had something like eight inches of rain fall in a three hour, two hour period of time. And everything was just inundated. There was the pipes were full, the going out to the river, everything backed up. We had to close and we don't ever close our roadways and we had to. So part of it is making sure that all your drainage structures are clean. It's nice to put in a, in a pipe and then you can't walk away because two years later, that pipe might be completely full or you're only getting a third or a half of the capacity. So if you go back every year and now that's what we done is to do a, a pipe cleaning program. We had one in the past. Now it's much more robust. So you have to keep your existing facilities up and running to the greatest uh, capacity that they could be. But the doing a vulnerability or assessment study of your roadway, you will find which areas are most likely to be impacted. You can't plan for everything. You can't plan for an eight-inch uh, storm or that much water to fall on your road and expect everything to work perfectly. But if your pipe network's working, your elevations are good, you're going to respond to it much quicker than if those things weren't done. And I think that's where anybody on this podcast, they should be looking. I mean, even around my house, you know, I do that, make sure the drainage pipes are working, everything's in good condition. So we could still get a flood in our area, but hopefully we respond quicker. So it could be micro, macro level, it really depends, but improvements can be certainly made that will help you out to recover quicker. One of the things you said there I think is going to be really important is that coordination between the local, state, federal governments to make these things happen long term. In your opinion, how does that happen? What has to happen for that coordination to actually become a reality? Because there is a lot that goes into it. Our governor is very into, as he should be, resiliency, sustainability initiatives. And we in New Jersey have created, uh, it's a IAC, Interagency Council on Climate Change Resilience. And it has brought us together, the DEP, the DOT, uh, SJTA, ourselves, New Jersey Transit. And we get together our experts and, and how do we coordinate some of those activities? But it really does take somebody at a top level to say, hey, Galt, pull this together. It's coming, it's here, and you need to start doing something with it. But again, I think resiliency and sustainability are topics that a lot of us with gray hair aren't used to, and we need to bring that to the fore and start pushing that. So New Jersey, we've started, but again, we're taking steps you will never be resilient. You can move steps towards being improving your resiliency, but there's always more that you can possibly do, but you got to start. To that end, when it comes to kind of planning for the future, John, what do you think are some steps that we can take to kind of be more perspective and proactive rather than just reacting to things? You need to look at your design standards today 
so that when you're building in the future, you're building something that'll last through the future. Design a procedures manual, but I truly believe that every project, if you're a consultant, if you're an agency person, wherever you are, you need to say, where are some resilient measures that we can work into this? I'll give you an example. We recently upgraded all of our maintenance facilities, 18 facilities up and down the road. And we looked at that. We said, well, what can we do? Back in Hurricane Sandy 10 years ago, even though we had backup generators, some of those generators were on diesel. So now the hurricane happens, you have the generators, it runs great. And then two days later, you run out of diesel because uh, you just can't get there or everything is shut down. So what we did, the facilities program, we made a point to go with natural gas and also more sustainable buildings, but the natural gas. So it was a little component to it. So it was an incremental price change in some zero price change if the gas was already on site or maybe we had to run some lines. But you can do that. You could take some of your utilities and put them underground, less vulnerable that way. When you're putting a new building in, look at the elevation. Are you in a floodplain? Or maybe you're not today, but what's the floodplain for 2100 when that building hopefully is still standing? And then you you design from there. So I really think every project you have to look at where can I get a little bit of resiliency and build that right into the project. John, what final piece of advice do you have for professionals in the transportation industry who are kind of looking to improve their resiliency efforts? Talk to your neighbors, your other agencies' perspective. What are you doing? Oh, I never thought about that. All I have to do is change this, and that's a good thing. You need to get a plan because sometimes it's not as daunting as you think. If you have a plan like we're uh, producing and everybody should really is what areas should I target? Just don't throw money at everything. You need to target certain areas that'll really help. There's some low hanging fruit. So one of the, everybody talks about rainstorms and rising sea levels and all that. But one of the things is drought. When you have drought, you can have wildfires. So our last job that we did, typically don't take down too many trees if you're putting in a new lane. But this time the DEP and the fire marshal came to us and said, we want to use your roadway as a fire break. And so they gave us uh, some more latitude to cut the trees back, cut down some of the underbrush. So it was a good thing for them. And that's kind of like globally working at it. I mean, that helped the, the state so the fires can't jump our roadways. And it didn't really cost us any more money. So that was a big thing. But all I would say is is develop a plan and that'll help you understand what changes you can make and where you should be spending uh, your resources and talk to your neighbors about what they do because we're all in this together. And maybe if I'm not competing against you. So I find something that really works, Anthony, I want to share with you and likewise back and forth. You can never have too many friends in this. And I think it's very important that we hop in and realize there's some modifications that can be made immediately that'll serve us really well moving into the future. Like John's saying, we need to do a lot of knowledge sharing on these topics and other topics in the industry. We got to help each other out because, you know, this is, like I said, for the safety and well-being of the public. And I think we all are responsible for that as engineers. And I, and I will say, I think John makes a great point in terms of the opportunities for your firms. You know, if you have private consulting firms, we do a lot of work with firms when it comes to project management training and things of that nature. But in talking with them, 
I see an opportunity. I mean, I certainly have worked with some firms we've worked with that have kind of jumped in on resiliency. I know a couple of firms that we worked with down in the Louisiana area with Katrina, and they developed all new service lines based on that. But there are a lot of other firms that I've seen that kind of haven't gotten into it yet, kind of haven't jumped in yet. I think to John's point, it's still something that some people aren't comfortable with. We're just not familiar with it and we need to learn more. And we really do need to embrace it because it's not going away. It's probably likely getting worse and we're going to need to continue to do more of these efforts. So I appreciate John kind of coming on here and talking us through resilience and kind of his perspectives and his interactions that he's had so far. But I think it really is an opportunity for you as a design engineer. You can make really make a name for yourself. We talk about building expertise in your career. This is an avenue in our industry right now that a lot of people don't know about that much. So if you take the time to learn on it, speak on it, and get out there, I think it can be very beneficial for one in their career and, of course, for a firm overall. So we're not going to let John go just yet. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in a minute, and then we're going to ask him a couple of last career-related questions. So we'll be right back. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Before we go on here, I would like to give a big thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, the Society of Fire Protection Engineers. Working to engineer a fire-safe world since 1950, SFPE is the world's leading professional society for fire protection and fire safety engineering. Comprised of more than 5,100 members and growing, SFPE publishes technical resources and hosts live and on-demand education programs to provide engineers with the knowledge to protect people, structures, and communities from fire. To help engineers prepare for each year's Principles and Practice of Engineering PE Fire Protection Exam, SFPE has developed an 18-week review course that focuses on the fundamentals of fire protection engineering while preparing candidates to think critically, adapt to the exam, and be successful professional engineers. Past participants of the SFPE PE exam review course report a 90% pass rate on the exam, notably higher than the NCEES reported first-time pass rate at 74%. To learn more about SFPE or to sign up for the online review course starting this June, visit sfpe.org. That's sfpe.org. All right, we are back with our guest for today, John Keller, Executive Director of the New Jersey Turnpike Authority. We talked a lot about resilience today, but now we're going to wrap up by putting John in the civil engineering hot seat here with a couple of last career questions. You ready, John? I'm ready. All right, any specific rituals that you practice every day? Maybe it's a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? I get into podcasts. Maybe that's why I'm on on your show today. But we all get up, you know, Monday through Friday. It's hard to get motivated. So I find from an educational, motivational, or, or just gaining new perspective, I like listening to a podcast when I'm in the car, driving back and forth to work. And, and sometimes it, it's fun stuff, but other times you're learning head talk and business. Of course, yours, uh, life work with Adam Grant, School of Greatness, whatever it is. And it, it kind of gets you motivated for the day, if you will, and or you're learning something. So I try to use, I have about a half hour drive, a lot of uh, podcasts are, are about that length, and I pop it in and, and I'm all good. Throughout the course of your career, has there been maybe a book, an author, a framework, a philosophy, you know, something that you've leaned on in terms of your personal and professional development that has kind of stuck with you or that you've gone back to time and again? I guess if you ever ask me, um, besides engineering, what I 
would have loved to have done in, in life or do in life, it would have been coaching basketball. I loved it. I coached at the high school level. I coached at different levels. But I see project management or being a leader in an industry the same thing. You want to assemble the best team you have, develop strategies, motivate, inspire your team. It doesn't matter if it's a basketball team or your engineering team. When I first started in as executive director, I read a book by Jim Collins, Good to Great. It's about 20 years old, but it still applies today. And all it's basically saying is we all have room for improvement. And maybe these podcasts give you a little edge over somebody else, but we could always improve. That was good. I've read many basketball books, uh, Bill Russell, Coach K, Jimmy V, even Coach Hurley, uh, The Miracle of St. Anthony. And it is always about motivating your team, working with people. What gets the best out of your team? How do you get everybody to come to work with a little jump in their step? And it's, sometimes it's very difficult. Year after year, that is, is a lot to keep people motivated. And I just find that uh, some of these books and some of these podcasts get me inspired. There are many, many parallels between athletic teams and coaching and engineering projects and business in general. And I've, I've read a lot myself. I'd also add to that Coach Wooden. There's some great books by Coach Wooden, Parcells, Belichick, Bill Walsh, a lot of them out there. And it really, it's about building teams. It's the same idea that we have to do in engineering and in life is build the right teams and and motivate those teams and inspire them. So I think that that can be a real big benefit to look into some things like that. Thinking back on your managers as you went through your career as an engineer, and, and not asking you to name names, but if you thought through some of your favorite managers, what made them your favorite? We're trying to understand like what makes for really good managers in the engineering world, traits, uh, qualities, characteristics. I was blessed. I had a, a manager who was very technical. Wouldn't let me open up a book to derive formulas. I mean, you had to derive them. You just couldn't say, here's the formula for a super elevation run out or whatever. Show me 2% per second. And you had to do the whole thing and you learn it. Here I am, whatever, 30 some odd years later talking about the super elevation, which is kind of dorky, but early in your career, you need to learn that. And then I had another manager who was excellent at building a team and he wasn't a great engineer. He was just like, I know this person, this person, if I put those four together, they're going to do a great project and it would give us all the resources we needed. And we did a lot of great projects. I'm not saying he was a bad engineer, but his whole thing was to motivate a team. And then finally, I had a, a manager who's just excellent at, at motivating people, just always seemed to know what you needed at the right time. Sometimes it's a kick in the butt. Sometimes it's an arm around the shoulder saying, good job, or I believe in you. And uh, that goes a long way. So I'm a firm believer you can learn something from everyone, Anthony. You can learn what to do. Oh, that person handled this situation beautifully. If I was ever in there, I'd like to do it. That person was terrible. And if I was in that position, I would never want to do it. I tell my kids all the time, learn, listen to see how people react to something. And then say, what would I have done in the same situation? And I, I think that's a big thing. That speaks to, as a leader too, understanding the different strengths on your team, right? Different people have different strengths and kind of leveraging those is important. I, you know, We do a lot of project management training and we, even when you're pulling together a project team, sometimes you have the abilities to pick and select who your team is. And when you do that, you want to think about the different strengths that they have and be able to kind of you know diversify your team, if you will. Absolutely. Yep. 
All right. So my last question for you, John, is you get into an elevator and there's a civil engineer, maybe up and coming civil engineer, and you only have about 30 to 40 seconds with that person. What career advice would you give in that very short period of time based on your experience? Build your network, your brand. Early on in my career, people were like, John, you're too social. You're getting involved in too many things. And I don't think that's possible to be involved in too many things. I was in a large engineering firm and how am I going to get the bosses to notice me? And they had to sign up who wants to be on this continuous quality improvement committee. And people were like, get out of here. I'm like, I'm in. And I got very involved. The next thing you know, you're standing in front of the president of the company giving a presentation. If they liked it or not, they had to at least say, I know the guy's name and he took some initiative. Some of that I got involved in coaching, I mean, in playing basketball, going to the company picnics, going to ASCE meetings or ASH meetings or whatever. You need to get people to know you. You need to know them, but gain their perspective. Talk. What makes a good engineer? People will tell, have different stories for you there. But I really think you need to build your brand, get involved early in your career, and continue to stay involved throughout your career. You can never have too many friends in this industry. Once again, John Keller, Executive Director of the New Jersey Turnpike Authority. John, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast, sharing your time and your wisdom with all of our audience. We really do appreciate it. Anthony, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. I do think it's an interesting topic and an important one. And not only that, but we always talk about kind of getting a leg up in your career, right? Building your skills to differentiate you. And I think learning about something that's relatively new, like resiliency, becoming an expert on it, speaking on it, developing resiliency efforts within your firm can really help you develop in your career. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And if you're interested in project management development programs for your firm, please give us a call, 800-920-4007. Again, that's 800-920-4007. We don't just do PM training we build project management development programs that have training sessions, tools, and templates to help your PMs create more profitable projects. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.